0: Romantics, I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you'd like to support us even more, please tell your friends or your mom. And subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite listening app. We also have a Patreon if you'd like to give us some financial support.
0: If not, we get it. No worries. All of our content is free for all of our listeners. Thank you again for your support of Womance. Thank you so much for listening. Don't worry, everyone, I got my thoughts and opinions about cats off my chest before we hit record. So this wonus is going to be as focused and interesting as all of our other wonuses. Welcome to another spooktacular wonus featuring a short story from the collection Monster Ball 2 Assassin's Match by Everly Frost
1: Double Balls. What are you drinking? This is apple cider and Armenian brandy.
0: Perfect. How autumnal.
1: It is. It's quite autumnal. It's really good. Do you know what I remembered the other day? You made amazing toddies with my Armenian brandy when we
0: were IRL. Hot butter rum season Mm. approaches. It do, it do. Listeners who don't know, and actually everyone who contributed to Monster Ball, because I think you guys could learn a couple things about cocktailing. A hot butter rum is when you make a compound butter with delicious ingredients like brown sugar. And um, should I start with what a compound butter is? A compound butter is a butter with things mixed into it. So you got brown sugar, cinnamon, cloves black pepper, like a Mm. little numbing spices. And then what you do is you take like a full tablespoon of your compound butter, put it in the bottom of a mug, top it with some dark rum, however much you want. It's a nice little house drink. And then you just top it off with, I think you just do hot water. I don't think it's tea or anything. Although a lemon tea would be good. That is what Isabeau and I were drinking when we recorded the Flame in the Flower episode after taking Flame in the Flower shots. We used to drink a lot more. Flame in the Flower shots were so good. I would like to bring that back for our Christmas season. They're very simple to make with very niche ingredients, which is fireball, Mm -hmm. whiskey, Canadian whiskey, and then orange flower liqueur.
1: (laughs) that was so good.
0: Which I want to combine orange flower and cinnamon in something. It works so well in the flame in the flower shots.
1: It did. I think we should build a cocktail for some of our holiday winter season texts.
0: Don't feel too sad about the fact that it's already October Mm. and Halloween's going to be wrapping up and then that we have to (laughs) celebrate genocide of native peoples on Thanksgiving with a lot of food. Like, don't feel sad about that. Just don't celebrate it or reframe it. Just don't celebrate it. Also, for
1: those of you in the know, Armenia is suffering in ways that it hasn't suffered in the last 25 years with its reignited war with Azerbaijan and Turkey is making a big deal out of it. And fuck
0: Turkey. I was not expecting. Also, yeah, think about that as well. If that's bumming you out, just remember hot butter rum seasons right around the corner. I feel like this is really imbalanced.
1: I mean, you said genocide and I was thinking about what's happening at the border of
0: Armenia. And well, you're drinking Armenian brandy. Exactly. That's not not on purpose. You are a fan of Armenian brandy.
1: It's because I have a friend who's Armenian. She was born and raised in Yerevan.
0: Mm, Okay. You always have it in your house and it's so specific.
1: It is. It's very specific. It's the gift that she always gives me, which is very kind because her father makes it in Yerevan.
0: That was a very special hot toddy. If you can find Armenian brandy and you're a fan of hot toddies. Yeah, that was so nice.
1: It's quite good. It's very smooth is what I will say for the Armenians. They know how to make liquor. Those folks, hearty folks, beautiful folks.
0: They also know how to make reality TV stars. Kylie and Kendall got into a a big fight. It's their last season. It is their last season. God. I couldn't keep up. Uh, Neither could I. Too many kids. Lots of big personalities. Yeah. And they're all big personalities and they're all professionalized by their own mother. But you know, like they must be really happy because they have all gone on to want to start their own bigger than average families. In my experience,
1: that's the two ways it goes. Like people who come from big families either want a passel of kids or they want zero. A passel of kids. That's so good. Like, there's no in between. Like, I have friends from big families, like five or more kids, and either one of their parents is like from a family of like seven or nine. And she's like, yeah, no, I have like a 100,000 cousins. And two of my aunts never married and never had children because they just had enough of it.
0: I've never met an only child who only wants to have one kid. I haven't either. And so if you're thinking about only having one kid, adopt them in pairs, just like kittens. Just like
1: kittens. They need to like bounce off one another.
0: Yeah. You need a buddy who's obligated to be your buddy to some extent. I think so. Don't you? I think the shared
1: responsibility, that shared obligation of like having to hold someone else's hand at the airport is a really formative experience (laughs) and like really good for you. I
0: think it's really good to have like a peer who you're responsible for. I think that's exactly right. And I think it's also important to have mitigated specialness at home, I, I love that mitigated
1: specialness at home. I also think it's really useful to have a familial sounding board for mom and dad's weirdness. Yes. Like, I think that must be one of the hardest aspects of being an only.
0: Yes. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I hadn't even thought of that. It's like, I am so grateful. My brother and I never do anything but compliment our parents profusely when they're not around.
1: And that's really useful, you know, to have. It's like, oh, mom and dad did this wonderful yeah, thing. That's yeah. so great. Can you put it in a context for me to understand it and my place in it?
0: If you do it with other people <laughs> who aren't your sibling, they just want to talk about their parents. Then you're like, I'm yeah, it's inter-
1: like that's not what I'm talking about right now.
0: Yeah, that's that's not why I came here. Exactly, exactly. Oh, I'd never even thought about that. I live with an only child in a romantic sense, and I do feel like I'm a bit of a hero, a bit of a martyr for it cuz I'm a really cool person and he's an only child. Can confirm both those true facts. Me and my family, he spent Christmas with us last year and or we spent Christmas with my side of the family, the actual holiday proper. And the day after Black Friday, we went to all get pedicures, every single one of us. So, my mom and dad, my brother and sister-in-law, and me and my lover. And the lady who was doing Brandon's toast was like, do you miss your big family? And he was like, oh, I don't have a big family. And she's like, you're dating the baby in the family. And he was like, yeah, I am. Like, he's like, oh, it's such a chore. And she was like, ooh.
1: When we all know that dating babies is the best.
0: Yeah, and the woman during his toast was like, I'm the middle of five. I don't know how you live with a baby. And I looked at her and I was like, he's an only child. And she went, oh. And just had like a million questions for him after that that seems right that seems fair
1: both of my parents come from big families my dad is one of four my mom is one of five Same.
0: they're both the babies well flip-flop my mom's one of five my dad's one of four
1: yeah and like babies together is like supposed to be really happy and fruitful, but also one of the most volatile yeah. birth order love
0: connections like us. <laughs> exactly. An amazing dynamic. We are a Libra Aries double baby combo. Uh,
1: if you ever wondered what made Woman snap, it's our birth order Zodiac combo.
0: It is. It is. And like
1: John's the oldest and I'm the baby. So like that's one of the most stable of love connections and sibling orders. But oftentimes because like I think it's gender and birth order are also part of it. So like John functions differently than I think he would have if he'd had brothers. He only has sisters and he's the oldest so he's the oldest only boy. Yeah. So like I think it intensifies his oldest sibling stuff. Mm -hmm. And like I'm baby baby and yeah, there's gender parity in my four siblings and I so...
0: You're from a good old fashioned big family. I am. There are four of us. He's from a family of three, right? Mm-hmm. I only have the one older brother, if anyone was wondering. But he's nine years older than me. I think he has some only child birth order traits. Is that true for all older siblings? No. Adam had an entire Thundercats themed basement to himself at one point in his life, which I feel like if you have a baby sibling show up at the age of three, you don't get the Thundercats basement. You don't get the Thundercats basement. But the other part of this and something that like
1: I think about sometimes is like, what is it like to have the only child experience as like a child child and then have the shared sibling experience as a teenager? Mm -hmm. And then for us, it slipped, right? Because my older siblings are eight and nine years older than I am and so like I was an only child only beginning at my adolescence mm-hmm. which is like a pretty chill time to become an only child but also one of the worst times to become an only child because suddenly you have
0: all of your parents attention and it's like the time when you want it the least the least <laughs> so I became very involved I think that's why I was such an involved young person because I was like get out. Wait for me. I have to edit the school newspaper. I have to be the lead in the school play. I have choir. I have orchestra. I have all of the least hot things you can do in high school, but I signed up for them.
1: Yeah, I was in debate and band.
0: Oh, I had a job. I had two jobs over the summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely a result of being an adolescent only child. I remember we were going to
1: the, it must have been the fourth Harry Potter and my parents are deep into Harry Potter because I was into it Mm -hmm. and they wanted to go to the midnight showing but I didn't want to go with my parents to the midnight showing of Harry Potter 4. No. And so like the whole thing was so bad because of course my dad like understood my massive like 16 year old embarrassment and so he just went to the bottom of the theater and he just started shouting my name and like shaking the
0: popcorn so embarrassing. I'm so sorry that happened to you. Oh, my God. And like my mom thought it was the funniest thing. Oh, no. And then she laughed. Oh, yeah. And then she's like, you hoo!" <laughs> My dad and older brother did a similar thing. This is vivid in my mind. My dad picked me up from the movie theater. I must have been like 13 and my brother decided to come with him. Instead of just walking out to the car and getting into the truck, they were in the lobby waiting for me. And my dad started loudly asking if I needed to use the potty before we left. And it was (laughs) unironic because he just like got used to having small children and was like potty is the only word I need for the rest of my life. And I was like, dad, don't, say. instead of just being like, no, thank you. I was like, don't say body. <laughs> really loud. And then my brother was <laughs> an asshole sometimes. Just started speaking it louder and louder. My dad loves it. So we are like feeding off of each other. And I'm just like, listeners can't see it right now, but I am bright red yet again, re experiencing this trauma and just being like trying to run out of this lobby and act like I don't know these people. And just so bad. And like the worst part was I slammed every door and it just made them laugh harder. And it was like impotent rage. Oh my God. That's the
1: worst thing about slamming doors is like when you are so filled with that righteousness and you just, there's no outlet for that emotion. There's no surcease. And you yeah. just have to, and then you hear the laughter behind. It's just like, fuck
0: you, man. It was yeah. awful.
1: <laughs> Boy, I felt that hard. I felt that deep
0: inside. <laughs> oh my God. Ugh. I need a moment. <laughs> But anyways, only children don't experience that, but they also don't experience that. And to be honest, babies fucks with babies. I had a tour group once. I've talked about this before. Bachelorette party, four sisters, and they were like, guess the birth order. And I said, ooh, I would say she's the baby. One of the middle daughters was like, that's correct. Are you also a baby? And I was like, I am. She's like, babies fucks with babies. And it's true. Babies understand babies. Middle children, I don't know how they get along with each other. I bet it's a lot of woe is me stuff. I bet it's a lot of woe is me. Honestly, yeah. But also. It's like two strippers looking for a pole. (laughs) And they keep trying to use the other one as the pole. But that person's also swinging their hair around a lot. (laughs) And so you can't get a good grip. That's what middle children are like. Older children, they probably don't talk at all. Or they just seethe
1: silently about all of the rules that were created for them that were like immediately broken and opened for the baby.
0: But also, they have that immense cool confidence. They did know
1: all the cool bands before I did.
0: And they're just like the oldest child, you know, gets that sense of like responsibility, gets all of that attention that I think leads to like that levelness Mm -hmm. that I think comes from an internalized confidence where you didn't have to compete with anyone. Mm -hmm. Older children seem to really understand their place in the world and feel comfortable in it
1: and feel comfortable finding a place in the world. Like when I meet oldest children who are like somehow on like a mid-career shift or like a journey of self-discovery, those are the most uncomfortable. Comfortable people totally. I've ever met, because like only children are like I have a role and now I don't know what it is and I am basically dying inside. Can you tell me what it is? And is? I'm like you just need to like have that moment of searching and they're like that thing that you're describing is alien to me.
0: Yeah, babies were fun and a little slutty.
1: <laughs> It'll probably work out. I'm charming and adorable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to bring it all the way. <laughs> For what? <laughs> For what?
0: <laughs> Our producer's an oldest child, and I wonder what he's pondering right now.
1: I think he's probably hearing a lot of truth, and he's also thinking, shit, I have yoked myself to two babies who like to fucks.
0: He's probably reflecting on the fact that he drove his baby sister to New York on a like fluke. <laughs> he's like, hmm, babies. Hmm. Baby, of course the two of us didn't think anything of that. Now that I'm saying it out loud, I'm like, "Oh, that was a thing. It's like kind of a big thing to happen." But I was like, "Of course, my brother would drive me to New
1: York." Yeah, dude, I had the exact <laughs> same thought. I'm like, "Oh, that's nice."
0: I'm like, "That's your job." Mm-hmm. Was it tiring? That's just what Probably. babies is owed. Well, I imagine so. <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing. We were very like cool. Oh, man. I'm glad we had this conversation. What are we talking? We're talking about Assassin's Match
1: (laughs) by Everly Frost
0: (laughs) at the Monster's Ball. Yeah. Two only children finding love against all odds at the Monster's Ball. So our our main character is a witch and I'm going to just say it. Her first name is Tanzanina. That's right. That's Nina, not Tanzania
1: Tanzanina
0: it's a combination of the country in Africa and the name Nina Tansy for short
1: which is cute admittedly
0: Tansy is a good name for a witch Tanzanina Mm -hmm.
1: is also a cool name for a witch if it's not cultural appropriation
0: it's also like lazy yeah There's a couple other things where there's, like, people who I think are white who have dreadlocks.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Or the only other person from a noted nation other than Russia is from Africa and turns into a
0: lion. (laughs) That's right! Africa is a continent, not a country. Mm -hmm. A continent of 58 nations. Yeah! Yeah! mm-hmm
1: vastly different
0: and I know you know that because you named her Tanzanina yeah or maybe the author like misheard the word Tanzania I don't want to speculate
1: I don't want to do that either especially under this political <laughs> climate we're in we did have a president who misspoke an actual country which one Zambia
0: what did he say
1: he combined Zimbabwe and Zambia
0: into what
1: Zim Zambia this was like in 2017 which was basically a million years ago
0: that is the most ridiculous way to do that <laughs> Zim Zambia Zim zam. Bia. as insane as that is
1: not the most insane thing that happened in 2017
0: Zambanina mm-hmm. is like on the level yes Zambanina oh my god
1: Tanzanina
0: Tanzanina
1: on that level, when I first heard it and the person who said it first was an angel hanging out in a library and I was like,
0: "Ooh!" in the Boston Public Library, mm-hmm. not a great city for race relations.
1: Indeed not, Morgan.
0: Speaking of which. I don't know if there is a city that's great for race relations, but Boston is bad at it and is not self-aware of it because Boston has that thing that people in New England and like the East Coast in general do where they're like racist, not I. And they think that because they're from the East Coast and not the South or the flyovers that they are somehow they've reach like an exempt status on racism. And to that I respond, Boston.
1: Not only respond Boston, because those of you who know our show know that I love 1776 and there's an amazing song in there called Molasses to Rum to Slaves, wherein South Carolina really calls out Boston. They're like, where are the ships made? Who are captaining those ships? What do their accents sound like? Like, don't act like you aren't Benefiting from this monetarily in big ways. Like, fortunes are made and they're taken back to Boston.
0: In that way, New England is very similar to regular England.
1: Yeah, exactly. They love to, like, shit on Georgia. But, you know, having the history of being like, oh, it's like we didn't have slavery in our colony when we first entered the Union. And, like, yeah, okay, cool. What have you done for me lately? Oh, Boston is the third most segregated city in the United States. Interesting. Okay.
0: My, hairstylist he moved to Chicago from Boston and he said one of the reasons was when he came to visit Chicago he was staying in Ravenswood Mm -hmm. which our previous mayor lived in Ravenswood and if you want to track gentrification in Chicago one of the easiest ways to do it is like what neighborhood does the mayor and office live in that's the freshest like for instance Lori Lightfoot lives in Logan Square so Rahm Emanuel lives in Ravenswood. So he went to stay with his friend in Ravenswood and he was like, and it was like 3 a.m. And I heard someone screaming outside and I saw that it was a black man with a panhandling sign. And I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. And I was like, what do you, what do you mean? He was like, I know that Chicago is segregated, but in Boston, they physically could not get to the Ravenswood neighborhood if they wanted to. And I was like, whoa. Whoa. And he was like, you know, neighborhoods bleed a lot in Chicago. We feed into each other and it's easy to get from one to the other. It's really easy. Even if you don't have a car or even if you don't have a public transit pass, you can walk or ride your bike or. Yeah,
1: that's one of the things about the city that is. Good and functional. And also because everything's connected. One of the things that directly relates to this in Monsters Ball 2 is that our hero, Alexi, is human and not allowed in.
0: Except he is. How does he get in? Never resolved. He is brought there on a beam of light. Yeah. Surprise. In his tight T-shirt and his black pants. A white light. So Tanzanina goes to the Boston Public Library to try and get a special spell book. A grimoire. Yeah, a grimoire that is uh, run by angels, fallen angels. And she comes to get a specific spell that can like undo things that had been done in the past because she fell in love with this assassin that we're just supposed to. Maybe it's like a thing in this author's universe of supernatural romance, but she had fallen in love with an assassin previously and he had a spell placed on him that prevented him from falling in love. So she wanted to undo that so that they can fall in love. Cool. Turns out the book was already stolen. And the angels
1: didn't want that out.
0: Yeah. Because it turns out fallen angels will themselves do anything to reascend to heaven. So we eventually find over the course of the story, this soul eating witch who stole this book did so to protect the spell from the angel who was guarding it, who was like, oh. I would totally use it to get back to heaven. Which isn't a fallen angel a demon? Discuss.
1: Morgan, you've I don't know if you've done this on purpose, but you've actually like unlitted um, one of the things that I love to think about and discuss and like one of my favorite
0: I didn't do it on accident. Uh
1: one of my favorite weirdo jars. So like I love the idea of Constantine with Rachel White. <laughs> I wasn't and expecting Reeves, that. where you have Tilda Swinton as Gabriel. And like this idea that angels have a very rigid, unflexible morality and that rigidity makes them do amoral shit all the time is deeply interesting to me
0: that's a really interesting theme in constantin that i think kind of gets towards something that like i'm constantly provoked to because i i study fan fiction it is milton right paradise lost mm-hmm. and also the poetry of virgil is treated like canon but mm-hmm. really it's just bible fan fiction
1: totally exactly like there's (laughs) nothing in the bible about this fall and like milton in paradise lost isn't even the first foray into bible fan fiction there's this amazing poem out of italy called jerusalem delivered which takes place where like jesus and satan are like invisible generals on the side of the saracens and the christians fighting over jerusalem and so then there's like this beautiful saracen warrior that she's dressed herself in armor and she's like really scary to to the christians and then a christian man falls in love with her but doesn't know that she's a woman and then he kills her and then it's like this whole thing and then satan's like oh shit we maybe like messed up with that one and like we're like gonna call in an audible we'd like to call a mulligan and like she can go to heaven and it's like what does it mean that satan is literally like a fucking rommel character here like taking over the sands and then you've got like in Jesus, who's just like mighty Christian soldiers who are just like literally murdering and like their murder is just buckets of blood. And so then it's like, who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? And the idea that we have been wrestling with this question and that like our avatars of this question are literal demons and literal angels is amazing to me. And so this idea of like when you fall to earth, are you a demon Or are you a fallen angel? What does that distinction do for us? And how does it help us think about your morality? I think about that really shitty movie with Nicolas Cage that was much better in its foreign iteration. City of Angels. Like, what the fuck?
0: Wings of Desire. I also love that he's so dopey. Yeah, it is this idea of like, what is a perfect human being like? Because that's how we conceptualize of angels as like humanity perfected, even though there's like, once again, nothing in the Bible that would imply that. That's pretty much entirely Milton talking right. about lucifer not even about like the average joe angel no like god's favorite
1: before he created jesus was lucifer according to milton and others but
0: in the bible angels are like creatures yeah they have thousands of eyes also there are classes of angels there are different ones and they're all different shapes and sizes right And,
1: like, it matters if you're an archangel versus, like, a seraphim versus a cherubim. And, like, that's where Joey Hill really, I think, got it right. Like, she understood the classes of angels. Like, she went actually back to the source text.
0: But this particular text understands angels as human-like in form except for their gigantic wings and does consider fallen angels to still be angels. Who act amorally. But maybe, like, hashtag problematic angels. Totally. Totally. So anyway, she steals a spell book and the angel librarian unhelpfully explains to her that like the only way you'll get to use it is if you find the woman who uh, actually stole the spell book at the monster ball. And her heroine immediately understands that because the thought was put in her head, she's going to get an invite, mm-hmm. uh, which is different from our last story. Although, I mean, it's not different, but like her understanding of it. And she's like, well, I just found out that this mother character, mother. Mother Cardis. Mother Cardis character. She seemed mythical to me, but she's real. So surely Monster Ball is real. Surely I'll get an invitation. She then uses some magic to fix up one of her little black dresses, which I think is a scene from Sabrina the Teenage Witch starring Melissa Joan Hart as well. Mm -hmm.
1: one of the things that I did like about this is like as she's like fixing up her little black dress she's also like arming herself there are like thorns in the vines Vines and nobody can touch her yeah and she's got like little weapons like she knows that she's not going into a safe space and the thing that she's going to do there is not going to be looked upon favorably necessarily by the host
0: this dress sounds better than the dress in the last short story but still not
1: great not great
0: still black and then it has black sunflowers which it's like if you were a true goth, sunflowers wouldn't even register. Absolutely not. Not that this character is a true goth. I'm not making assumptions. Lilies
1: and roses. I mean, but also like a black sunflower just looks like a sea anemone. You know what I mean? It's just like, how would you know the difference? You'd have to explain it. And that seems silly.
0: I did think it was interesting how, so she's an incredibly powerful witch whose magic has been depleted from an incident when she was a toddler and her aunt tried to steal her magic. So she believes her magic is depleted. She can't memorize spells spells. So she writes them down on pieces of paper. In this case, she writes them down on the petals of the flowers that adorn her dress, which I thought was a pretty cool detail.
1: I did too. And I also thought this was like a very useful nod at like what it means to have different kinds of capacities and abilities and like how people work through that to make it work for them.
0: Yeah. At being adaptive.
1: So she shows up to the ball.
0: Shows up to the ball. She does get her invite. It's a different intro to the ball. This time she goes through a warehouse by meeting a couple of gargoyles. Chicago is described as having a gargoyle problem. (laughs) Wrong. And I said, there's a difference between a gargoyle and a grotesque. Gargoyles serve a function. They take Water, they sleuth water, sluice water away from a building. A grotesque is just a decorative addition.
1: Also, weird insight into Isabelle's id. There was definitely a time in my childhood where I watched the television animated series Gargoyles.
0: Holy shit, yes. Fucking loved it. The Law and Order SVU for tykes. Mm. And was
1: definitely sexually attracted to Goliath.
0: Also, for Star Trek
1: fans, the bad guy is the voice of Riker, Picard's number one.
0: I want you to keep in mind what a gargoyle is conceptually, which is like a fearsome looking creature meant to frighten off demons. As soon as I step within knocking distance of the door, the dark gargoyles transform into human form, their massive wings unfolding around them as they fly to the ground. Cool, sounds like Gargoyles the cartoon. Yep. Isabeau shaking her head because she knows where this is going. Both are muscular and well-dressed in slacks and button-up shirts, Mm -mm. dreadlocks falling about their shoulders. They have nearly identical features, although one wears his dreads a little longer than the other. He wears shiny red shoes and an all-white jacket with an embossed mask print. Once again, just like not cute. Their names, the gargoyles' names, you might be asking, are Lex and Bronx, as in the (laughs) burrow. So one of the things that occurs to me
1: about this text is that this author potentially understands her readership as being pretty narrow. Explain. Whenever a character is racialized which happens not infrequently, the racialization of that character is such as to be exoticized and or appropriated.
0: Yeah, because like you can say like, oh, we're making an assumption based on the fact that these characters have dreadlocks. White people should not have dreadlocks. Maybe someday, but... Uh... And Tanzanina
1: as a name. And so sometimes what this text Did in those terms. And when she finally gets in, when she gets past the gargoyles, the first shifter that she meets and she's never met a lion shifter before is the character from Africa.
0: And it's just like... And he also has dreadlocks. Yeah. And he has light skin with freckles and blue eyes. Yeah. And I kind of feel like there's some PSA there where it's like, oh, you thought that because he was from Africa, he couldn't have blue eyes. And it's like, I feel like we've stumbled across a lot of hurdles arriving towards this... Line of thinking, <laughs> Yeah,
1: right. It's like, yes, indeed. There are people in Africa who are born white Afrikaners in South Africa, for instance. But like there's a whole legacy there that's like worth getting into that. We just shouldn't just like, you know, like, yeah,
0: even, we shouldn't like, just be like, he's a lion shifter from yeah. Africa. Right. Not great. Not great. Not great. Not great. And we know that, you know, there are countries in Africa. Because you can name one. And you're an adult. Yeah. So it seems to me that sometimes
1: that this author, I think, does an injustice to a broad audience. Yes. Like, I don't think it seems that this author is writing for a broad audience or cares if she's writing for a broad audience or it just doesn't seem to me that this author is considering that their audience might be broader than it actually
0: is. It also just seems like not productively self-aware. Yes. Which means like your job isn't to check the assumptions of your readers leadership. It's to check your own assumptions.
1: Right. Like this feels like an author whose subtext is screaming, I don't see color. Yeah. And like, that's a problem.
0: That's exactly right. That is how the book comes across. Yes. I mean, the story. That's exactly right. So there's that. The other metaphor, (laughs) there are two huge metaphors at play here. So our heroine is very invested in dissolving a curse on her beloved that does not allow him to experience love for her emotions of any kind but
1: the one that she's most particularly interested in is his inability to love her.
0: Yeah, specifically her. Yeah. Now this short story does a great job of like confronting the fact that like she thought she was within this selfless project and that's why it was inherently noble because it's good for him to experience love. But then when she actually encounters him at the monster ball, she discovers as Mother Cadarus comes to explain to her like you should have probably been able to tell that he could experience love because what he was expressing and experiencing for you is love but he also is like for the benefit of whom and the book does ask that question she realizes she's invested in an inherently selfish project but it doesn't really penalize that right she does make a really big hard decision with a big, hard problem that I think is deeply relatable to a lot of people, which is like you love someone who doesn't feel that for you back and like cannot feel that for you back. And just like not to be like the more you know about this and like do a PSA. But if you have grown to feel these strongly about another person and they don't feel strongly about you, just keep in mind that they had the same amount of time and same amount of connective experiences as you and they have reached a different conclusion. And just because you enjoy feeling in love with them doesn't mean that they have reached the same conclusion about you. Like initially I was like wow that's really surprising where she was like you know what I have to let him go. I've realized that this is a selfish project. It's actually selfish for me to want to hang out with him and want something different from him than what he can offer me.
1: I also thought like one of the things that this story did so well is like the moment where he is like literally telling her it's like you deserve more and she says what if I compromise and that I'm willing to make that compromise. And he says, like, you might tell yourself that, but it isn't true. Like, you have to let me go. We have to let each other go. You have so much in your heart to give that it would harm you to continue in this way when I literally cannot and will not offer you this thing in return.
0: But then it turns out he was already giving her that. I know. (sighs) God. And that he just needed to realize it, which fucking sucks. But I know it's a romance short story. And so it has to kind of work out that way. I know. But it's still like kind of was like, ah, oh, oh, that kind of sucks. You know? Yeah. Although
1: I really did love his nickname for her, which was little son. She's like, why do you call me that? And he's like, because my days are dark without you. And I was like, me.
0: Yeah. It's like, oh, he's not in love with you. You don't say that to
1: someone you're not in love with.
0: So there's that. The other big metaphor is mothers. These are the two most tight fiveiest in 1998 problems that a relationship will face, which is the presence of a mother and an inability to feel affection in the way that you need or you feel affection for your partner. Mother's future, largely. Mother's feature largely. So it turns out the witch who stole the spell book is actually his mother. A mother that left
1: him because he was not witch-born, was only human-born. So then we also have, like, bad mom vibes. Hardcore.
0: But then we discover that it's because her coven would have killed him if she didn't abandon him.
1: Right, so then it's like, good mom redeemed even though she left him.
0: And somehow, like, even though he's not magical, he's able to become a magical assassin. Yeah. Which... I didn't like! Yeah. How do you get the magic rings that give you superhuman abilities? You know what's interesting to me about this?
1: I'm like, I think it's really right. You said earlier that this text makes metaphor literal. And I think that's actually something that folklore actually spends a lot of time doing. Like there's this really great folklore story out of Russia about Baba Yaga who meets a young prince in the woods whose baby and wife died. Like the wife tragically died in childbirth. The baby was also born dead. And it's so awful and so monstrous for him to live through this, that he asks Baba Yaga to take the pain away. And so what Baba Yaga does is she takes his heart and eats it. Yeah. (laughs) So then in like the story then you have a heartless prince and he turns into a tyrant. And so then someone has to come along, obviously a beautiful village girl, who has to discover the problem, go defeat Baba Yaga
0: and get the heart back. That's a very elegant metaphor. Exactly. Being like, my love is contained in three rubies because it was too big for one ruby like she's like why are there three then she's like because my love was too big for one ruby it has to fill three rubies that's not an elegant metaphor
1: and it's always been with you so that you could join the magical world when you could
0: babe even though you never knew me or a mother's love or anything
1: like that and I didn't write you a letter I left you these three rubies yeah there's like an elegance problem a subtlety problem Mm-hmm. And anytime we're dealing with folklore, which kind of often feels unsubtle, even though it's doing really sophisticated and complicated things like there isn't a one to one shift into like if I throw it into a prom dance party, like all those moves will be the same. And it's like, no, they're not because they're actually quite sophisticated.
0: Yeah. Then there's like metaphors that end up showing up like it can't be on purpose. Like there's a real like special thing in the writer's understanding of the monster ball that translates to a sort of eugenics problem which is that like being a witch isn't a practice it's a being fine okay I accept that you're like born a witch and it's not like a series of choices you make in an ongoing practice within your life which is how I've understood every other witch okay you're born a witch or you're not born a witch right which is similar to like the Ryan Murphy American Horror Story understanding or Harry Potter or Star Wars hmm Here's the thing. In American Horror Story, in Harry Potter, you can be randomly born to this life. Mm-hmm. It can happen randomly. It's not about like a family inheritance. But then whenever we start to get to episode one, two, three, we discover the Mitochlorians, right? Oh. Which means you're actually in this very limited pool of characters who can control the force. And like a similar problem is happening within this story by making witches a monster, Mm -hmm. and making this assassin who for all like livable ways of being is magic. Mm -hmm. Like his power isn't even removed from him when she steals the rubies. It's literally just in a ring. I know. And I do feel like that's, at least eugenics adjacent the Star Wars Mitochlorian thing and the witch thing in this story or the magic thing.
1: I think what it ends up doing and like as it does in Harry Potter, right, is that it creates these very intense hierarchies that aren't just based on power or work or work ethic. They're based on things that you ultimately can't control, right? So right. like this idea of being muggle-born or being a mudblood is deeply and obviously eugenics related. And so then like this witch stuff about like how you attain your power or don't or how your power can be stripped from you, like makes you less of what you actually are. And that becomes really weird, especially in hierarchies of power. Like the thing is like the fae world of the monster's ball is like quite complicated. And like this idea of like this eugenics adjacent thing really just flattens it out in ways that are like not particularly useful or fun. I think one of the strengths that I only see in the Selkie story after reading this one is that it's like we're all different kinds of fae and like this fae does this and this fae lives here and like the magpie is really powerful because like he is. By the way, we get a magpie cameo. We get a magpie cameo. But like that doesn't take away from like the Selkie's inherent power and like the Selkie has to discover that power for herself.
0: But it's also like when I was reading the Selkie story and I saw witches there, I was like, okay, there are people who can like acquire magic.
1: Right. And it seems like people can also acquire more power. Like the magpie seems to be acquiring magical artifacts. Like he acquires the selkie pelts. Yeah. Yeah. And so then there seems to be an internal inconsistency that's leaning really hard towards this move about racial hierarchies as perceived through magical lens, which
0: because you'll accidentally make that, you know, if you're not conscientious or like the issue of the werewolves in Harry Potter. Yeah. Like you either are or you aren't. And so you're either worthy of this party or you're not. And by the way, it's not even a fucking cool party. We find out that the furry white beanbag chairs are a thing. Uh, And like the party looks the same throughout every story instead of the riotous Bacchanal Isabeau and I envisioned. Wanted. It's instead like a dorm party. Yeah. Like a real bummer. Everything's humanoid, which kind of is a bummer. Like I read the like prologue. She's like a new unicorn bartender but it's not an actual horse who can magically control cocktail shakers. It's like- Which would be amazing. It's like the last unicorn, a woman. It's not even that good though. It's a failure of imagination. There's the other aspect of this eugenics thing where it's like an aura. So this witch can see the aura of all of the other magical creatures to determine what they are because presumably they all look like humans, even if they're dragons, even if they're unicorns, which, you know, I get that maybe you're trying not to write a Chuck Tingle so you're like oh it's gotta be a humanoid of some kind but it still seems kind of like lame. You can just write stories like sex stories between humanoid creatures if you want. But then this other aspect of the aura is that she's able to see how powerful a creature is. A monster air quotes is. And that kind of further ties their strength to some kind of physicality.
1: Yes. Like a three piece suit or a class ring or like a Harvard sweatshirt.
0: Yeah. Which is just like assigning meaning to physical features, which is what the most simple explanation of racialization as we have understood it for the last 400 years works. 400. Yeah. I'm like talking to someone who like I don't see. But do you see what I mean?
1: I do. Yes. I see the problems of it.
0: Like that's the icky feeling around this
1: story. I think it's so important that we talk about the icky feeling in this story because it's using a vocabulary, a jargon and a shorthand that I think a lot of us are really, really familiar
0: with. Familiar with to the point of like not even seeing it. Exactly.
1: And it's using those things so inelegantly and so uncomplicatedly just to like do this blanket thing to give this this scaffolding that is actually creating even more problems and creating really gross moments that like really need to be fucking investigated and I think yeah. like this is like one of those things like especially as like two white women it's like this is one of the things we can do or it's like this is not the way to do this right
0: this is not the way to do this and the other thing I would want to highlight is the fact that this story does create more captivating characters in a shorter amount of time than the other story we read in this collection it did for sure and so like things can be technically good. They can be pleasing to you. And if you don't poke it, that's where you end up internalizing or like reinforcing these already internalized expectations.
1: Yes, that's the danger. This is a better story than the Selkie story. It it was more fun to read. Yeah. I immediately understood that I was in the hands of a better writer who had a more fully realized imagination. At least for this particular
0: scenario. Right. And there are still these problems in it. Right. There are still these problems in it and you can't just be like oh I liked it and that's good enough because you're reinforcing it to yourself yes and you're guarding yourself against empathy and growth
1: yes and you're internalizing
0: sloppiness and like yeah, and then you're just like internalizing sloppiness don't do it that's the other thing it's like it, 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 <laughs> this stuff is embarrassing it's 2020 y'all let's do better let's do better <laughs> on that note I'm your private dancer. Dance of my Do what you want me to
1: do This week's romance is brought to you by Christmas Kisses with my cowboy Featuring stories by Diana Palmer, Marina Adair And Kate Pierce
0: Yeehaw, Or should we say Yee-ho-ho-ho Holiday anthologies As we hear at whoa, no Are a great way to either take just a festive dip Or totally immerse yourselves in seasonal spirit So we're excited to share with fans of Christmas Christmas and Cowboys and Kisses this new collection of Contempo Christmas Casuals for 2020. And not only because the cover features a golden retriever and a horse wearing a Santa hat whilst galloping.
1: Consider all of Diana Palmer's books have hit bestseller lists. I, myself, Isabel, have enjoyed her writing on occasion.
0: New York Times bestselling author Kate Pierce is known for her ability to create realistic and compelling communities filled with complex characters that fans of Western and romantics alike crave.
1: And Marie Adair's St. Helena Vineyard series has turned into a series for Hallmark Channel Movies. Need we say more? Contractually, we do. Morgan, roll the beautiful summary footage.
0: Mistletoe Cowboy by Diana Palmer. Horse Whisper. Parker doesn't drink, smoke, or gamble and he doesn't have much to do with women either. Sounds like the opposite of us. <laughs> Until he meets winsome widow Katie ooh, mm. and her sweet child. Oh, it's all good. This is great. Christmas kisses under the mistletoe bring the handsome wrangler the gift of his very own family. Mm.
1: Blame it on the mistletoe by Marina Adair to claim his slice of the family ranch Texas Ranger Noah is forced back to Tucker's Crossing. All he expects to find is a tractor load of painful memories until a holiday storm, a power outage, and perhaps the magic of Christmas deliver him to rescue an intriguing woman named Faith. But just who's rescuing whom?
0: Great name for a Christmas novel, Faith. <laughs> Mistletoe Detour by Kate Pierce when Morgan Valley rancher Ted Baker. What, what? I've never known him to ranch the Morgan Valley, but okay. <laughs> gets out his tow truck to pick up a snowbound driver. Oh, I hate that. <laughs> I hate being a snowbound driver. He doesn't expect to find his old school friend Veronica on the lamb with her pet pig. Much less true love. Just in time for Christmas.
1: Pre-order or pick up these mistletoe misadventures at your favorite bookseller
0: from your friends at kensington books isabeau are we ourselves under the mistletoe because Mm -hmm. that was so good so i think for me this story is gonna be a no man's
1: hard no man's
0: but i will say after exploring other stories in the collection that i do enjoy the collection it's such a big collection at such a reasonable price
1: It is nice to have a spooky season collection like this. I'm dipping my toes in other places. And like, that's what's so great about an anthology, right? So it's like, these two weren't working for me, but like, you know, I'll try the others because I like a
0: spooky 35 minutes, you know? Exactly. A spooky 35 minutes. I don't know. Is there anything else we can say about this story? No. Okay. With that, loosen your nusses. But never your woes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> whoa golly g thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. womance is hosted by Isabeau. That's me. And Morgan. That's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our web mistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzak. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best.
1: If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with <laughs> us on our social media platforms, you can find us at Mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at mail. Womance- at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com.
0: You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are romance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast. Until next week. Mwah.